Hello, I'm Raymond. And I'm Samantha, and we're from the Multifaith Chaplaincy at Bates College. The Multifaith Chaplaincy warmly and creatively nurtures the religious, spiritual, secular, and searching communities at Bates College to encourage students to live into fullness and build deeper connections. We value curiosity and create spaces for conversation, contemplation, and connection. We've named our podcast Buen Camino, or Good Journey in Spanish, because we'll be talking to people from the Bates community about their personal stories, the paths they've taken, and where they've found meaning along the way. Our guest today is Dr. Ian Cara Elisante, a faculty member in the Gender and Sexuality Department at Bates College whose research uncovers identities marginalized by interlocking systems of power. As you will hear, Dr. Elisante is also a poet and an artist. Dr. Elisante sat down via Zoom with our multi-faith fellows Serena Sen and Ben Schmant to discuss neighborhood, community, false starts, and transformation. Hello, I'm Ann Cara Elisante. My pronouns are they and them. Hi, I'm Serena Sen. I use she, her pronouns. I'm Ben Schmidt, and I use they, them pronouns. Hi, Professor Elisante. I wanted to start by just asking you, where were you born? Hi, Serena. Um, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. Awesome. Uh, do you think you could describe the neighborhood or the community where you grew up? Sure. Yeah. I spent the first several years um, in a neighborhood in Memphis called Orange Mound, which is the neighborhood with the highest concentration of African-American people, second only to Harlem in New York City. And in Orange Mound, I was surrounded by a close network of aunties and cousins and lovely neighbors. Um, So I have a lot of great memories from those years. And in your childhood and young adult years, like what people and experiences kind of set you on the path that has you here now? <laughs> well, the first person that comes to mind is my mom. She uh, was a single parent and I was her only child. And, you know, she was the primary influence in my life. And I'm proud of that. I often say that I was socialized into Black womanhood, which I think might raise some eyebrows, might sound a little surprising to people who know me because I'm also so proudly trans and so proudly non-binary. But I say that I'm, I'm proud of my experience of Black womanhood because the richness and the wealth of Black womanhood is so central to who I am. I was raised in a, in a matriarchal family. Uh, my great-grandmothers, my grandmothers, my aunties, my mom. And these were the pillars in my life. Um, and many of those who are still here are still, you know, the pillars and like among the most dependable people in my life. And they shape so much of who I am today in my heart and soul. When I think about the career I've chosen and where I am, I can look to them and see that so much of what I learned from them is still showing up today for me. That's pretty beautiful. How did your family tell you about who you are? What were things that your family did that marked important holidays or passages of life? Yeah, that's a great question. We spent a lot of time together. So as I mentioned, you know, it was me and my mom, we were a family unit, but then we had all of this great extended family around us. You know, my my mom's sisters who were like 
other mothers to me and, you know, this whole network of cousins and we would go to school together, walk to school and I walk home from school. And so holidays were pretty special times because it was just another way that we got to spend time together. But in terms of how my family told me who I was, I saw all around me who I was. I saw reflections of myself and my mom and my grandmother and my cousins. And I also saw that there were myriad ways in which I was different. So I spent plenty of time with this lovely family of mine, just really glorying in that sense of belonging that I felt with him. But I also spent plenty of time feeling rather isolated and thinking about the ways in which I was different that I didn't really feel ready to talk about. So for example, the fact that I was and am and have always been queer and the fact that my experience of gender felt so different in many ways from the experience of same that other people were having. Yeah, totally. Was religion or spirituality an important part of your background and your upbringing? And is it still today? Yeah, definitely. Well, aspects. So it was definitely a big part growing up. Religion, I'll say more than spirituality. I was raised in a black church in Memphis, which was, as far as I know, um, the first black church in the city to become non-denominational. So still a Christian church, still an evangelical church, but not aligning itself with like a Baptist tradition or Methodist or anything like that. And we had a pastor who was a great teacher. And I think I learned a lot from him. And throughout my childhood and adolescence, we were at church a lot, like several times a week. And the majority of my family uh, were also active members of this church. Many of them still are. Like that is our family church. And I don't, I'm not, I don't align myself with that anymore. I feel that I learned a lot from those experiences. And a lot of what I learned has been good stuff that stuck with me. But I also internalized a lot of self-hatred because as I mentioned earlier, I've always known that I was queer. I've always known that my experience of gender was something that was different from what I tended to see reflected around me. And my experience in church, not just in my church, but in other churches that I, I would visit, was that there really was no place for people like me. And I was getting those messages from a very early age and felt a great deal of shame. And despite the wonderful sense of belonging and this, this idea that I had about who God was and the love of God, I also felt that there was a place in which, because of who I was, that I was inherently rejected by God and by this community of people. So because of that, I've taken this philosophy, <laughs> this is a, a Southernism, but to eat the meat and spit out the bones. You know, when it comes to what I gained from growing up in the church and particularly in the church that I grew up in, there were so many great things that I learned about how to be a good human being and how to treat others. And But there was so much also that I learned about self-hatred, which I refuse to keep. So right. I reject that. I spit that out. And I also reject the idea that, you know, there is a higher power that thinks that people are abominations or worthy of hatred. And yeah, that to me feels ridiculous. So I'm willing to let that go. Yeah. So at this point in my life, I would say that I'm a spiritual person and, you know, there's a certainty that I feel that I've earned throughout my life about my connection to something bigger than myself. 
And however that is defined, I wouldn't say that I know, but there is a certainty that I have and I feel really comfortable in that. That's really, really lovely. Yeah, I can imagine that what you're being told as a kid was just like so intensely contradictory and a hard thing, but it's nice to hear that there's still some meat that you managed to, to get from it. Um, I guess one follow-up question I have is just, are there any practices that aren't like necessarily textbook spiritual or religious, but that feel spiritual and feel important to you and grounding right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whenever I spend time in nature, there was a time in my life, it's not current, but the first half of the day on Sunday, I would try to go out and spend some time in nature. And I would say, this is my church because I felt like that is a way that I felt very connected to something much larger than myself. That's really lovely. Thank you so much, Professor Alessante, for those reflections on your childhood spirituality and your journey with your own identity. I'd like to sort of continue talking about that by wondering, uh, how did you navigate high school? While you were there, what did you do and where did you find refuge? High school was interesting. So by then, I think, as I've said, I, I was quite aware that I was not straight. And in terms of gender, I was aware that you know, there was something very different about how I was experiencing and interacting with my gender compared to the experiences it seemed that most of my peers were having with gender. And of course, I didn't have words for it at the time. And we're talking early, mid 90s here. So really, you know, this wasn't as much in the media then as it is now. But throughout high school, expressing myself authentically felt very important. And my gender expression throughout high school felt for the most part like a true representation of who I saw myself to be. And despite the messages that were all around me that were trying to fit me into a particular box, I did feel for the most part, pretty comfortable expressing myself through my clothing, through the ways I styled my hair in ways that felt really true to myself. And there was refuge in that for sure. In terms of school, I, I was involved in some extracurriculars, but until my senior year, you know, probably shouldn't say this as a professor, but I really did not care a whole lot about being a great student. I really, I felt like, you know, I definitely had academic interests, but I think I was a little bit more focused on my social life at the time <laughs> and also working. I worked part-time at a few places in the mall. We had a mall, believe it or not, right across the street from a high school, which <laughs> made it really convenient to cut class. But yeah, I worked part-time throughout high school at a restaurant. I also worked at a record store. I worked at an athletic shoe store. So that felt very important to me. We didn't have a lot of money. So I love being able to earn my own money, minimum wage, of course, but it did allow me a little bit of freedom to especially buy my own clothes and make choices about how I wanted to dress myself and adorn myself. Thank you. I'd also love to hear more about your experience in college. So where did you go to college and what was your life like there? And then in college, where did you find meaning 
and who impacted you? Mm-hmm. Well, my journey to and, and through higher education was not a direct route. For me, I took six years after high school before returning to college. And so during that six years, I worked a lot. I lived my life. I did a lot of living. <laughs> I explored a lot. But when I did start undergrad um, at the University of Memphis, it was because I was ready um, and not because anyone else was pressuring me to or because it seemed like, you know, it was like the traditional thing to do. No, it was because I was ready. And at that time, I was very focused and self-motivated to earn my degree. And so I ended up graduating in three and a half years with double majors and double minors, secretly pat self on back all these years later. <laughs> but, but it was a transformative time. And I learned so much, especially about myself. In terms of influences and, and impactful people, I had one teacher and it's funny, I'm, I'm thinking about her as, as truly impactful, but I don't remember her name. I just remember that she said this thing in passing once. She said that she really loved teaching at the college level because she really loved the perpetual exchange of knowledge and learning and energy between teachers and students that she could get as a college teacher. And I'd never heard that before. And it, it, it stuck with me. And it, I still think about that today. I also had some really great professors who were poets and artists, and I had friends in college who were poets and artists. And, and what was most impactful to me from them was learning that it was perfectly okay for your creative practice to be a central part of your life, that it didn't have to be sidelined or relegated to a hobby, that it could be something that is truly a, a driving force for you. And, and I've tried to uphold that. Thank you so much. It sounds like those six years between high school and starting college were also really important for you. And I'd love to hear a little about what your experience was during that time, what sort of ended up leading you to wanting to pursue a further degree, and like what guided you and was formative in that time. Mm, yeah, that's, that's a great question. I used to think a lot about those six years, and I haven't thought about them in a while, but I will say that I tried the traditional route. The first semester after I graduated high school, I did go to college. And I also was working a job that had me working all night. I was working the overnight shift at Federal Express, actually FedEx is what we call it now. And really thought that I could manage both while also maintaining an active social life. But I did not, I did not last the semester. So I made a decision to drop out, I think halfway through the first semester. And I'm so grateful that I did. You know, it was, it was disappointing, I will say, to a lot of my family members because, you know, they assumed, you know, that I was a smart kid. And what smart kids do is they get scholarships, which I had gotten, and they go to college right after high school. But I just could not find it in myself to prioritize it at that time. And so I, you know, I worked jobs, <laughs> a variety of jobs. I got a lot of experience in, I guess, what we can say is the real world. I learned a lot about myself as a queer young adult and, you know, explored the club scene in Memphis a lot and had my fun with that. 
and I was working in accounts payable <laughs> in this for this corporation and had been there for a while. And I started to realize that there were also young people who were about my age, maybe a little bit older, who were either college students or had graduated college. And there was just something about that. I don't know. I can't remember exactly what it was, but that really inspired me because I realized like it's not that they had something that I didn't have. They had just chosen a different path. And so, yeah, I turned all of my attention to school. And when I started college, I left my job in order to do so, so that I could really throw myself fully into it. And I was so excited to do so. I mean, I earned straight A's through most of my time at college. That is until I started that biology minor. And then <laughs> things went a little sideways with that. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think those six years allowed me some time to find my own motivation and to really figure out for myself what my goals were rather than going to college just because it was what was expected of me. That's amazing. It sounds like you really found a lot of meaning for yourself during that time. I did. Yeah, I don't regret it one bit. When you did end up graduating from college, how did that experience line up with the expectation of what you'd seen from other young adults around you? Was it what you were expecting or was the reality of it different? (laughs) It was, you know, that time, the time I was in college was so transformative for me. I mean, by the time I left, I really felt like a very different person than I was when I entered. Um, And by the time I graduated college, I knew that I wanted to teach in higher education. Um, it wasn't clear to me at all what the route was to achieving that. Like I, no one actually said to me, okay, if you want to be a professor, here's what you have to do. <laughs> I just knew I wanted to do it. And um, so I didn't know what the prescribed route was. I also didn't know what, what my route would be um, or what my journey would entail, but I just knew it was my goal. Um, And so in that first year after college, um, I spent a short amount of time as a legislative intern with the Tennessee State Legislature, which it was an eye opening, um, catalyzing experience, to say the least, definitely informed a lot of, you know, my social justice orientation. Um, I went to bartending school for a little while and I did that. Uh, for a while. And I loved, I loved bartending actually a lot. Um, I started a tutoring venture, which um, was in Memphis and allowed me to focus a lot on low income uh, K-12 students in the city. I taught literacy skills and reading skills to students in Memphis and then over across the bridge in Arkansas. And this was all like in this short span of time after graduation, but eventually I made my way to Tucson, Arizona, where I spent the next decade of my life. And at some point while I was in Arizona, I decided, you know, why don't I go to grad school? You know, there's this great university here in town. (laughs) Uh, What am I waiting for? And so it was there that I decided to go to grad school and kind of, um, I wish I could say it was just a straight shot from there to becoming a professor. But even then there were all of these detours and tangents along along the way. That sounds like a really incredible combination of very different experiences that all sort of came together for you. 
Did any of those in particular feel like they were really drawing you out of your comfort zone or were there other moments where you felt that pull? Yeah, I I felt it then and I feel it now. When I think about the times I, I feel most drawn out of my comfort zone, when I feel really compelled outside of my comfort zone, it feels like the times that I that I feel compelled to speak truth to power. And at those times I feel I guess I, I'm 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 a bit of an introvert. I think part extrovert, part introvert. It's interesting to see when when either of those will show up. But um, when I am called to speak truth to power, that definitely feels like it's outside of my comfort zone. Yet it's absolutely necessary, right? Especially because for me, what that most often has to do with is justice and what is right and the liberation of the most oppressed and marginalized among us. So when I feel drawn in that direction, as nervous as I might be, I think about, you know, Audre Lorde, who says, you know, speak, speak your truth, even when your voice is shaking. You know, I think about Asada Shakur, you know, who writes, you know, it is our duty to fight for freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love each other and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. I hear their, their words and, you know, I try to, you know, be brave. Thank you so much. If you've experienced one, could you describe a moment when you really felt like this is it? This is what I am supposed to be doing. Yeah. So the moments I've experienced that most consistently are when I'm teaching and when I'm writing poetry. And it's not every time, mind you, because wouldn't that be great? But (laughs) but it's often enough to remind me that I'm on the right track, that I should be teaching, that I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing when I'm teaching. And that when I am giving myself the space to create, to write poetry, to create artwork of other types, that I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing, fulfilling a purpose of sorts. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Can I really quickly just ask, what kind of other artwork do you like to do? (laughs) Well, it's been a while, mostly because I'm very wary about (laughs) making messes. But... uh, (laughs) But uh, I really, I like to collage. And so I I still accumulate like collage materials, but it's been a minute since uh, I've created anything. And I also like to do these visual pieces. I don't even know what to call them, but I sit down with the sketch pad and create these pieces that I've been told they look like stained glass. So I I don't- Pretty high praises. Well, I don't care about that, but- um, yeah, but mostly mostly writing poetry, I feel like that is that feels like a real vehicle for me and my creativity. That's awesome. That was super interesting. It's really fun to be your student and then like obviously you're not always talking about yourself to hear all these things. Like a bio minor, who would have known? I didn't know you lived in Tucson. You were yeah. writing poetry. It's really cool. So yeah, uh thank you for sharing all of that. And I think that now we just kind of wanted to hear a little bit about how you've approached major decisions in life? Do you follow like careful processes of weighing options or do things just seem to catch up to you? A combination of both. It seems like I know there have been 
probably pretty a good handful of major decisions in your life. So. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, I actually feel like I'm a fairly cautious person um, and it feels like I'm that way by necessity because of my, my family's socioeconomic background. I feel that I've had like little to no safety net, which meant that, you know, for me taking risks and then failing at those efforts would always be more costly because they're, you know, if I fail, they're really, you know, it was up to me to pick myself up and, and keep going. So I have undergone, you know, some changes, some major decisions in my life, but always, at least when they were initiated by me, I've done so with a lot of contemplation and weighing of options. So for instance, when I moved from my hometown to Southern Arizona, it was completely sight unseen. I'd never been to Arizona before, much less, you know, this town of Tucson, but there was still this structure undergirding that whole endeavor. It was carefully planned and well thought out. And and then later, you know, when I moved from Tucson to New York City, this whole cross-country move, it still was not impulsive or frivolous. It was also very well thought out and, and planned. And, and even throughout my gender transition, you know, which is a different type of move, it, and it has been full of unknowns and all types of risks, particularly social risks. I've thought through every aspect of that as much as I could anticipate. Now, granted, there have been so many aspects over the years on the social aspect in particular uh, that I that I could not anticipate. But but those that I could, I feel that I've tried to make measured decisions about. So yeah, I tend not to be a very impulsive person when it comes to decision making. But when I do have to make a decision on the on the fly, I, I try to just lean into my certainty and allow myself to be decisive and 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 stick with the decision that I've made. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I feel like sometimes people can think of like, oh, spontaneity, fun, whatever, but things are still can be like a move to Tucson, even if it's thought through, is really exciting and brings new experiences and is just as lovely having yeah. thought it through. Yeah, so. it's, you know, it's so funny. When I tell people that I, I moved to Tucson sight unseen, I knew I was moving to the desert. And I really thought that I was moving to a desert in which I would see sand dunes. And, like, <laughs> and which, you know, like it was the desert that I thought the deserts were. But I got there and, you know, it was at night. And, it, and then I remember like waking up and looking outside and being like, okay, where is this place that I live now? And I was amazed to, to see all of this like life around right. me, you know, these, these beautiful cacti and these trees and all this biodiversity and not one sand <laughs> in sight. But, You're expecting, <laughs> but you know, it was, it was, it was the desert. It was just a different type of desert. Um, totally. I still love it so much. It's funny. Yeah. You like think when you like, I have an image of the like Dell background desert. It's like yeah. <laughs> until you see another one, it's the only one in your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just to go back to what we were talking about earlier with big decisions and big questions, do you have any thoughts about the relationship between purpose and work for us students as we go out into the world? How do you think we should be preparing students to find meaning in today's world? Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, having been my student for two classes now, I think. Yes, um, Self-reflection to me is, is, is just a key part of life, uh, 
but it's definitely a key part of my teaching philosophy. And it's something that I encourage my students to always be practicing. And so reflecting on, on their own unique positionality, maintaining an awareness of their positionality and how that positionality is impacting their approach to the topics, the cultures, the people that we're studying and maintaining a mindfulness that they are granted a unique lens, but that lens is always shaped by the social hierarchies and the, the, system, the systemic advantages and disadvantages that, that structure this society. And so what I, I hope that my students always remember is that that perspective will necessarily impact how they see and what they see of the world. And so in class, you know, I encourage them through self-reflection to critique those lenses, to critique the lenses that they have inherited or that they have otherwise simply assumed are the correct ways or the only ways to see and experience the world. I want them to maintain an understanding and awareness that there are a multitude of correct, quote unquote, correct ways to see and experience the world. And ultimately though, what I hope uh, for my students and for every person really, is that they would be moving toward a coalitional understanding of their purpose. And what I mean by that is to look beyond themselves, to look beyond the issues that just affect their own lives, and to understand that we are affected by interlocking and unified systems of oppression. And so to build solidarity with others for the sake of liberation. In my class, a couple of my classes uh, this semester, just a few weeks ago, for for instance, we've been talking about this move from intersectional feminism to coalitional feminism, in which we're doing more than just thinking about, you know, the ways people are impacted by systemic oppressions, and we are moving toward building solidarity and alliance together with people in ways that that are more than about how we ourselves are impacted, but looking at the ways that these systems of oppression impact us all. So I want my students to, in their work, in their time beyond Bates, to hear Fannie Lou Hamer's words ringing in their ears when she says, nobody's free until everybody's free. And I think that is you know, a purpose that could and should hopefully uh, drive and motivate students throughout their lives. That was really beautifully put. It's been really great to be in your classes. I think like I had really never thought about positionality so critically until a couple of years ago in, in my first class with you. And now I really, it's in ringing in my head all the time. So I think that's a really wonderful thing. I guess a follow-up I have with that, which again, you totally don't need to answer. If it's not something you want to talk about, but must be hard and frustrating as a professor sometimes to see people not leaning into self-reflection in the way that you would want them to. And I wonder, how do you, how do you think about that? How does it affect you? And is it something that you like kind of do you externally do something? Does it affect you internally? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Hmm. I think the places that I would probably see this would be in those reflection papers, you know, that totally that uh, students in my classes write. And I guess there have been a few, you know, where I feel like 
students are just skimming the surface that they really are not attempting to take a deep dive and self-reflect. Overwhelmingly though, I am just impressed with the the degree to which students are willing to like unpack their stuff, you know, and and really take a look at what they're bringing to the table and how that is currently impacting, you know, maybe it's our first conversations, our first couple of conversations in class about race and students are really, you know, allowing themselves to be blown away, you know, because for some of them, this is the first time that they're really exploring these topics to this degree. So, yeah, I guess there have been a few. And honestly, I guess I'm trying to think, how do I feel about that? I would say I probably internalize it more than I, more than I probably should. I, I imagine, uh, I think as a first thought that it's probably, maybe I haven't explained the assignment clearly enough, you know, for, for these students. Or, uh, but I think a quick second thought on the heels of that, though, is that these students probably just aren't quite ready yet. And so this is a good time to remind myself that, you know, these are relatively young people and that maybe my class isn't the moment in which they're going to have their aha time, you know, and, and really move into this mode of self-reflecting that hopefully will begin to transform the way they experience the world. Uh, <laughs> maybe that will come in, in a future class. Maybe they'll take a class with one of my colleagues, or maybe it won't happen in college at all. But I try not to write it off and assume that, you know, this is a student who's incapable of self-reflecting. I just think maybe now is not the time. Well, that was a really lovely answer. And I'm glad to hear that it's overwhelmingly positive. That kind of leads us really well into my next question, which is about meaning. And I'm sure that those moments feel meaningful to you. And just wondering kind of what is most satisfying in your life and in your work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... <laughs> That's a great segue because yeah, in my work, most definitely it's it's the students bearing witness to to their learning and growth. And again, those those reflection papers are a great way for me to to witness over the course of even a semester how this growth is happening and this learning is unfolding. And I feel like I get to be a witness to for some of these students something that's really transformative. And I feel like I get to be a witness and then in a more active way, I feel like I get to be a small part of what catalyzes this transformation for them. And that's very satisfying. Um, it makes me feel like my work is, is truly meaningful, particularly because of the types of things that I teach about, because I'm teaching about other people and other cultures and, and really trying to humanize the experiences of, of people who are more marginalized than the extreme majority of the students at Bates. Um, so what I, what I hope is that, you know, this learning sticks with them and I get the sense that it does. And that, that is very gratifying. Outside of work, being a part of a loving family is everything, everything to me, my partner, our kiddo, uh, we've got a new little baby on the way. Uh, no which, way. Yeah, yeah. That's I, so exciting. I haven't quite come out about that yet, Serena, but I think I, I probably will tell the class about okay, it. Okay, um, that's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> Massive congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, you know, this little core of of family that I've got and then my mom and my, my chosen family, this is really what it's about for me at this mm-hmm. point in my life. And 
I don't know if I would have said that that was always true. I think there are other points that I felt driven and motivated by other things that felt a little bit more external. But at this point, it's really about, you know, these, these individuals who are so close to my heart. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is so exciting and such a beautiful thing. Okay. um, Then the last question is, when do you feel most connected to something larger than yourself and what inspires you? Yeah. When I'm, when I'm creating things, whether it's poetry or, you know, when I'm engaged in some visual art work, I feel like I'm in alignment with some greater process of creation, you know, and that probably feels, <laughs> it probably sounds like a, like I'm super grandiose here, but I don't mean it that way. I just mean that I am, I feel that when I am creating, I, um, I am living up to some aspect of my human purpose. And as I mentioned earlier, when, when I'm in nature, when I'm surrounded by, whether it's trees or saguaro cactus, you know, whether it's, you know, mountains or, or rock shelters, whether I'm standing beside a river or standing with my feet in the ocean or, you know, feeling like I'm being moved and pulled by the waves, all of that, I just feel like that is such a beautiful and vital part of what it means to be a living, breathing, thriving being on on this planet and um it i'm so grateful to be able to have those experiences and and it feels like a gift and so whenever i'm able to partake in those things not only do i feel like i'm i'm doing what i'm supposed to be doing but i feel like i'm i'm just being lavished you know uh by the beauty that's all around me and uh yeah that that definitely makes me feel like i'm I'm connected to something bigger and, and there's a certainty. I mentioned it earlier, you know, there's a certainty that I feel and that certainty gets affirmed when I do have those, those experiences of inspiration, you know, from being in nature or from aligning myself with the act of creation. And yeah, I get to kind of plug into that certainty that I'm, I am a part of a, of a bigger experience, whether it's just the experience of humanity or whether we want to look at it as in a more spiritual way and, and say that there is some higher power that is, you know, motivating and moving us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Um, it's been so lovely to hear more about you and congratulations. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah. It's been great talking with you, Serena and Ben. Yeah. I'm wishing you a good rest of the semester. You too, Professor Alessante. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing so much of yourself with us today. My pleasure. Thank you to the Multifaith Fellows, Sam McCune, who joined the Multifaith team over the summer and helped with audio editing, Multifaith Chaplain Brittany Longsdorf, and Dr. Elisante for sharing their story with us. Thanks for listening and have a good winter break.